energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not really. It's the various factions under him and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is seven pounds? There's certain key things that we want from India and there's certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Now, we scale great heights in this programme sometimes, or at least we like to think that we do. Uh, But I have to say, a story that I has giving me sort of nightmares this morning is uh, the, I don't know, are you familiar with the, the skyscraper challenge? I wasn't until I read about it this morning, actually. So, Apparently so, it's been going on for some time. Yeah, so this is, you basically race up the skyscrapers in the city of London, uh, but they added an extra twist this year, which we'll see which gave people the chance to when they'd run up the dozens of flights of stairs at the top of the Cheesegrater building and on Leadenhall, that they could then take a zip line across to the top of the Gherkin. Sounds horrendous. Now, I mean, it, it's quite funny actually reading our reporting about it this morning is that uh, one of the first people that did it, who's uh, someone who works for the Leadenhall building, said that it was quite frightening, uh, although it was an experience. And he's very pleased that he did it. Uh, I've done it now, so I don't need to do it again, which I think sort of sums up, <laughs> some, sums it up nicely, so, yeah. so much in this issue and in politics. I think many politicians will agree as well as that some things that are very frightening and perhaps they shouldn't be doing doing again. But I suppose the the part that I did take out of this is the Higher Wire Act. And another person doing a High Wire Act over the weekend was the Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak uh, while at the G20 in New Delhi as well of course meeting the Chinese Premier um, at a time when we had these reports over the weekend that somebody who was working as a parliamentary researcher had been arrested uh, on suspicion of spying lots of concerns about what sort of Chinese influence that might have over policy and something that we know has been uh, a concern at a political level but the fact that it was somebody who worked in the parliamentary uh, estate being accused of this uh, was uh, particularly worrying it was something that the Prime Minister had words with the Chinese Premier about, we're told. This is something that we're going to discuss in a few minutes' time. We'll be joined by Lord Peter Ricketts, who's chair of the European Affairs Committee in the House of Lords. He was the UK's first national security advisor, so we're going to be talking to him about that in a moment. Yeah, it's all been quite something, hasn't it? I see that the uh, person accused of spying, or one of the people accused of spying, has this morning said that he's completely... Uh, innocent. So, yeah, so pushing back on those allegations. Yeah, indeed. Of course, matters economic coming up very prominently at the G20 as well. And the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has been speaking to Bloomberg's Haslinda Amman in New Delhi. Let's take a listen. Chancellor, there's great interest in the FDA with India. Where are you with that? We know that you're looking at the uh, finance elements to it. I mean, what does that entail? Well, we are making good progress. Um, there are lots of detailed discussions. Um, we won't sign anything in a hurry and nor will India. It has to be right for both sides. Um, And on the finance side, what we want to do is to unlock more ability for each country to invest in the other. There's already significant investment flows, but it could be so much more. And in the City of London, we're sitting on trillions of pounds of pension fund and insurance industry assets. And there's a real desire in London to invest more of them in high-growth companies, whether in the UK or in India. So we've been talking about how we do that. Realistically, when can it happen? It's already been delayed. It was supposed to be October last year. Can you do it before year-end? We could, but uh, I think it just depends on what happens in the next few weeks. Uh, What I would say is I sense real political momentum. I think both prime ministers would like to see if there's a way to do a deal. Um, And I think this is a good moment because um, if you look at India's plans for Gift City, for example, 
um, turning it into an international finance centre. London is the most international financial centre in the world. If you look at uh, India's Silicon Valley in Bengaluru and uh, Europe's Silicon Valley in the UK, there's just so much we can do together. Can India live up to China, which is the other big trading partner? Well, I think um, we have had focus on China for a couple of decades now, and international investors are now saying, hey, there's India. We've got to look at the opportunity here. Um, and India is the fastest growing economy in the G20 this year and next year. Um, it's got this bold ambition to be a developed country by 2047. So I think there's a lot of really amazing things that are going to be happening here. At the recent G20, Prime Minister Sunak confronted Premier Li Chang over espionage allegations and just wondering that under those circumstances, can the two leader, Prime Minister Sunak and President Xi Jinping, meet? Of course, um, because you have to talk with people even if you disagree with them. That's what keeps the world safe. That's what prevents misunderstandings, prevents wars. So diplomacy is about talking to everyone and, uh, and Britain will always understand that. Um, and of course, when you have that dialogue, you are able to talk about the things that you disagree about. And uh, from our point of view in the UK, like India, we are a very resilient democracy and we take threats to the functioning of our democracy very, very seriously. So obviously I can't comment about the particular case in detail except to say that we take all these incidents very seriously. How far is the UK willing to go? Well, we, um, we will take each situation on a case-by-case -case basis, but I would point out that uh, you know, if there was an attempt to subvert British democracy in any way, and it's an if because we don't know what the outcome is, um, then it will have been stopped in its tracks. And uh, we are very confident that we will be able to keep the fabric and the functioning of our democracy secure. Um, but we do not expect other countries to try and interfere with it. I want to turn to the UK economy. The fiscal headroom was the smallest on record back in March. Do you see that improving? Would there be a, a bigger headroom, fiscal headroom for the autumn statement, you think? I think it's unlikely because since the spring budget, when the last numbers were published, uh, we've seen inflation stickier than was forecast at the time, and that means debt interest payments are higher. Uh, but we don't have the numbers yet from the Office for Budget Responsibility, so this is uh, speculation for, <laughs> for you and me both. Um, but our priority is to bring down inflation. And when you're trying to bring down inflation, you have to be really careful not to pump extra money into the economy, much as you would like to, not to, to pump extra money into people's pockets, mm -hmm. because that can push up prices and keep inflation higher for longer. So the one thing I can absolutely say is that our focus at the autumn statement will be on bringing down inflation and delivering both the Prime Minister's goal to halve inflation and the Bank of England's target to get it down to 2%. Of course, inflation has eased, but not as much as other countries, much slower, in fact, in terms of how uh, the rate of it easing. Uh, do you think the Bank of England has done a good job? Well, I think, in fairness to the Bank of England, uh, lots of central banks around the world underestimated the persistence of inflation. They were actually one of the first 
to raise interest rates uh, when they did. Um, and we brought inflation down from over 11% to 6.8%. So we are making progress. At the same time as which we've discovered that uh, the UK has a GDP that is higher than pre-pandemic levels and has recovered better than any other major European country. So the economy has shown that it's resilient, but the long-term uh, future for the economy depends on getting inflation down, and that's what we're focused on. You've talked about wanting to cut taxes, but uh, I think it was uh, Paul Johnson of the IFS who said that politicians will have to be honest. Chances are um, taxes are going up, not down. Is he wrong, are you, or are you then dishonest? Uh, well, Paul Johnson is never wrong. He's a kind of <laughs> guru that everybody listens to. And he is right that if we don't change course, we are going to see taxes going up. And how do you change course? You have to increase growth. And you'll be hearing a lot from me in the months ahead about how we increase our growth levels from between 1% and 2%. But give us some insights on how you can increase growth, because that's the way to fix inflation and your budget deficit. Well, um, so I'd just say that uh, increasing growth is one thing. Controlling public spending, making sure that you spend taxpayers' money wisely is another thing. You'll also be hearing about that. How do you increase growth? Okay, a few things. First of all, you make it easier for businesses to recruit the workers they need. Uh, so they don't have to put up salaries and put up their prices. Um, secondly, you have to get inflation under control. And thirdly, you have to boost business investment. And that's why I'm here in India, because there is so much investment. We had the, the tremendous news of uh, JLR uh, and their parent company, Tata, investing uh, billions of pounds, 4,000 jobs in a gigafactory in Somerset. But we think there's lots more investment that the UK could provide to India and India could provide to the UK. So that was the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt speaking to Bloomberg's Hasland Amen in New Delhi. Well, at the G20, the Prime Minister told Chinese Premier Li that he had significant concerns about interference from Beijing. That's after it emerged that two men had been arrested in the UK for allegedly spying for China, including one who worked as a parliamentary researcher. Well, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Nin says that spy activity in the UK is, quote, non-existent. Well, joining us now is Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, Chair of the Lord's European Affairs Committee and a career dip diplomat who served as the UK's first national security advisor until 2010. Now, Lord Ricketts, we're going to speak to you about your committee's report on EU citizens' rights after Brexit. But first, we wanted to touch on China. W were you surprised that somebody was accused, somebody accused of these links will be working actually in Parliament? To be honest, I wasn't surprised to hear this because we've known for some time that the Chinese are engaged in a pretty broad spectrum effort, not just to steal intellectual property and secrets, but also um, to uh, influence and subvert political debate in the UK and indeed, of course, in other democracies. And so I think the Chinese see it as fair game to try and infiltrate um, people of influence, agents of influence, if you like, into the heart of the British establishment to um, find out what's going on and then try and persuade or influence in the direction of Chinese interests. So um, I'm not entirely surprised that they regarded um, doing that in Parliament as something, in their view, um, legitimate um, spying. 
Now, of course, as we heard there, the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson has denied that there was any spying activity in the UK. But how worried should we be about Chinese influence on UK policy? Well, we don't need to take seriously what the Chinese uh, Foreign Ministry is saying about this. I think it's been obvious for some time that there is a very large Chinese espionage effort against um, Western democracies generally, including the UK. And uh, this is one more example of it. And I think it illustrates something that we all need to be aware of, that um, the Chinese don't consider spying just to be stealing secrets, which is a kind of classic definition, but also uh, trying to influence public debate, um, trying to uh, push uh, the way the UK business, academic, uh, political community looks at China in the direction of their interests. So they will want to have people who are sympathetic to their views uh, in positions of influence where they can um, try and um, run arguments that are um, comfortable for China, uh, turn the debate away from issues that are difficult for China, um, uh, generally try to exercise some degree of influence about the way uh, China issue is discussed and debated here and decisions are taken on it. Um, It's uh, subversive. Um, It's probably quite uh, wide scale. And I just think it's something that people need to be vigilant about. So people need to be thinking if somebody is arguing a particular line, which sounds to be particularly, um, uh, you know, something very uh, useful um, for the Chinese point of view, quite why they're doing it and whether there is an example somewhere of Chinese influence mongering. Do you think that our policy, UK policy towards China has been consistent over the past 10 years? No, it's been changing over the past 10 years. I mean, 10 years ago, indeed, Chinese policy towards the UK was much more cooperative. It saw competition with the West, uh, economic competition uh, and cooperation as something that was in Chinese interest. So they joined the World Trade Organization. They built up a very large trading and investment relationship with the UK um, through sort of legitimate business competition. I think in the last 10 years, it's changed and there's much more emphasis now from the Chinese on this now sort of aggressive, uh, assertive um, uh, style of policy, relying on things like um, espionage and subversion. But at the end of the day, British policy, quite rightly, I think, is trying to deal with the complexity of China, a threat in some areas, um, a business partner in other areas, uh, and an essential uh, interlocutor for issues like climate change or uh, energy or sustainable development. We can't um, uh, avoid an involvement with China, which is the second largest economy in the world. So we need to have a multifaceted policy towards China, but being very vigilant on security. How do you, drawing on your diplomatic experience, how do you think Rishi Sunak has handled this, talking about having raised significant, very strong concerns about any interference in parliamentary democracy, which is unacceptable? That's what he told uh, reporters in New Delhi after having met Premier Lee. Is that sort of face-to-face encounter helpful um, when trying to manage these very difficult or very tricky relations? Well, I think I think it's essential that he said what he did. I think he couldn't have done anything else in the light of the uh, front page news that was breaking about this the parliamentary researcher while he was in India and talking to the Chinese premier. And I think it's absolutely right that Rishi Sunak and other Western leaders call out China uh, on this uh, level of effort to subvert parliamentary process, um, also on their human rights um, performance in Hong Kong and with the Uyghur community. 
um, uh, in addition to discussing the more cooperative elements of, of the relationship. I think the Chinese premier, I mean, it won't influence him or change his mind, but he has to hear it straight from Western leaders that what they're doing uh, is, in our view, unacceptable. And I think that the prime minister was right to do that. Well, let's discuss uh, citizens' rights in the UK after Brexit. Later today, the Lords will be debating your committee's report on that subject. How many of the issues from your initial report in 2021 are still outstanding? I think the big picture on this has been uh, there's been a successful programme uh, in the UK, the so-called EU Settlement Scheme, which has received 7 million applications from uh, EU citizens who were uh, living in the UK at the time of Brexit. And of those 7 million, 6.2 million have been granted. So, I mean, that's a colossal um, programme to give permanent status to many, many EU citizens who've made their lives here. There are still some continuing problems. And, and what we've been in correspondence about with the Home Office for the last year or two is really the residual problems uh, towards the end of this scheme. For example, those who are applying late now are finding additional restrictions. Uh, it's more difficult to apply. There are more tests. Um, there's a backlog in dealing with applications, which of course leaves some people in limbo, not able to apply for things like driving licenses or uh, European health cards to give them access to healthcare when they're traveling in the EU. Um, and then there is a big issue that has concerned many, many EU people here, which is that the government refused to give a physical document confirming that they have settled status in the UK. They insist it has to be just the digital um, uh, reference on their home office uh, account. And for many people uh, who perhaps don't have access so much to internet or um, you know, find difficulty accessing the digital uh, status, having a physical document would have been a real reassurance, but the government so far refusing that. So we'll be picking up issues like that with the minister this evening. Uh, it's not that the scheme has been failing. The scheme, I think, has been a success. But uh, something of this scale, which impacts on the lives of many people directly, there are bound to be these sorts of issues remaining. And so that's what we'll be pursuing. Yeah, and of course, it's it's interesting to think, as you say, given the scale of the number of people that have been involved in this scheme, that it has largely gone well. Is the UK living up to its side of the bargain when it comes to citizens' rights then under the withdrawal agreement? I think it's largely living up to its rights. I think that uh, the EU Commission would accept that, that the scheme has you know, gone pretty well, given the scale of it, as you say. Uh, and also, of course, we shouldn't forget uh, British people living in the EU many of whom have taken on permanent residence there as well. But they do have a number of these concerns about the treatment, particularly the backlogs building up now and the sort of legal limbo that that leaves some people in, the uncertainties about um, new restrictions on applying to join, the issue of a physical document. And these, are, these are things which haven't gone away and are continuing to cause problems for people. And of course, this is inevitably an aging population because those who were settled in the UK before Brexit, you know, they're now seven years older, and some are getting to be quite elderly. And these sorts of issues become very important to them. So um, I think I think that the EU side would accept the UK has made a, re a real effort to uh, welcome and uh, ensure people can have their rights and access them. Ditto EU countries for, for British people. Um, but there are still human issues here, which um, it's our role in the Lords, I think, to um, uh, hold up and uh, ask the Minister to respond to and think further about. And what about the process of changing from pre-settled to settled status? Because there have been some concerns over that. Yes, there have. Uh, and indeed, um, the uh, Independent Monitoring Authority, which is the body that monitors how the British government is 
living up to its um, obligations in the in the withdrawal agreement. That took a um, a judicial review case to the High Court recently uh, to uh, make absolutely clear that people only have to make one single application. And if you've made one single application uh, successfully for pre-settled status, you don't need to make a second application for that to become settled status after five years. There'd been some doubt as to whether people then had to go through the whole rigmarole again, make a second application in order to move from pre-settled to settled. Um, the High Court has made clear that is not the case. And the Home Office have said that they will, um, I think this was in December last year, the Home Office are still uh, telling us that they will be telling us soon what the arrangements are going to be to give effect to the High Court ruling to make sure that nobody is put in the position of losing their status because they don't apply to move on from pre-settled to settled. It's a technical point, but a point of real concern to many people. Yeah, it certainly is. Listening to what you're saying about citizens' rights and the progress that has been made and how, as you say, the process has largely gone very well. We also had the news recently about the UK rejoining the Horizon Research Programme as well. How do you characterise relations with the EU now, uh, this long after the Brexit referendum? I think I would say that they reached a low uh, in the long and very difficult arguments about the Northern Ireland Protocol issue. I think the Windsor Framework Agreement that settled that um, earlier this year, followed by the Prime Minister's decision to for UK to um, effectively go back into the Horizon Programme as an associate, I think those are two big steps towards getting back to a cooperative relationship um, uh, where some of those tensions have been lifted. Uh, that's all good. And as you say, the treatment of um, citizens is, has been good as well. Uh, there are still a whole series of uh, issues um, on to do with trade, to do with the border, to do with the movement of people, uh, and many, many others. And I think that's always going to be true. I mean, our relationship with the EU is never going to be um, settled for good. There will always be issues to be dealt with. But I think a black cloud has been lifted because of the winter framework. Uh, it's good news that the Horizon Programme allows British researchers back into business with their European counterparts. And so things are on an upward trend, but there will be a constant series of transactional problems that the two sides will have to deal with. How worried are you about the impact of further EU regulations on UK exports? As the British Chambers of Commerce says, there is, there is an avalanche coming uh, of, of new regulations. Is, is, that, is that troubling for you? Well, that is exactly the sort of thing I was talking about, that, that because EU legislation will keep moving on in these sorts of areas, uh, in trade, in areas like data protection as well, the UK side will constantly have issues to decide, are they going to, in effect, align with EU regulation, make it easier for British businesses, or are they going to take uh, an independent approach, um, uh, which you know might be good for those who want to brandish British sovereignty, but will probably increase costs for business if they have to meet two sets of regulations on two sides of the channel. Um, those those problems will keep coming up, uh, and it'll be up to the government of the day to decide. Of course, we they will, you know we're going to have an election next year, and the new government, whichever party it is, will have to take on these sorts of issues and decide a policy of where to align with the EU um, and where to strike out in an independent direction. Well, thinking about the UK's approach to the EU, given that we're heading into an election context, what's the key message that you want the parties to take away going into that in in your position as chair of the Lords European Affairs Committee? 
I think we have to remember that, of course, there are elections on both sides. There are, there are the European Parliament elections as well in uh, EU next year, which will produce a new commission um, in the summer of next year, and there are the British elections as well. So there could well be a changing of the guard on both sides. I think my message would be let us use the trade and cooperation agreement, the mechanisms in there for cooperation, so-called specialised committees. Let's use those to the full uh, to make sure that we can continue to manage the relationship through this period of you know, political uncertainty on both sides of the channel um, and make sure that it's still in good shape when the new teams come in uh, in um, the second part of next year. I don't think there'll be much scope for major new uh, initiatives between now and then, but there'll be a lot to do to keep the show on the road uh, and with then the possibility of the new government here, whichever stripe it is, reviewing um, how much further it wants to go in the relationship. Well, I want to ask you about uh, what happens after the next election. We're just a year or so, perhaps, out from the next general election. Whichever party wins that election, how would you like to see the UK refocus its place in the world? Well, that's a big question, isn't it? Uh, and it will depend which which um, uh, government wins, which party wins. Uh, I, I would like to see um, a serious look at the EU-UK relationship there is an opportunity for that in a review of the trade and cooperation agreement, which has to happen in 2025. That'll be an opportunity to see where there are areas that aren't working and could work better um, within the trade and cooperation agreement. Beyond that, I mean, the whole issue of Ukraine uh, has put the um, international security um, issue right front and center. And our Lords European Affairs Committee are doing another inquiry now into the impact of that Ukraine war on longer-term relationship between the UK and the EU. I mean, there will be issues like the reconstruction of Ukraine. What, how will we coordinate on that? It's going to be very expensive. Issues like enlargement of the EU, possibility of Ukraine joining one day, big UK interests in that as well, uh, foreign policy, defence policy, cooperation. All those issues, I think, are given a new salience by the war in Ukraine, um, and they will be issues that a new British government has to look at. Okay, Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, Chair of the European Affairs Committee in the House of Lords. Thank you so much for your time and insights on Bloomberg UK politics today. Interesting to get the view of Lord Ricketts, uh, given the events that we've been talking about, not only at the G20, but given that we are heading towards this review of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement with the European Union as well. It's going to be uh, a conversation the next government is going to have to tackle and will be interesting point to see how the parties lay out their stall on that issue as we get closer to the next general election. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcott and our audio engineer was Marifal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.